0: What's going on, everyone? You're listening to the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sit down with Morgan DeBon. Morgan is the founder and CEO of Blavity Inc., home to the largest network of platforms and lifestyle brands serving the multifaceted lives of black millennials. Their mission is to economically and creatively support black millennials across the African scape so they can pursue the work they love and change the world in the process. During our conversation, we talked about everything from Morgan's upbringing growing up in St. Louis, her early career and what her mindset was like, the series of events that inspired her to launch Blavity, the mission for the company and what she hopes to accomplish, what she's most excited about for the the future and much more. We we'll kick things off by hearing about what young Morgan was like.
1: Well, young Morgan uh, was a young black girl in St. Louis. Um, I. I am very Midwestern, uh, very traditional St. Louis background. So, like, I went to a private all girls Catholic school. Uh, I was, uh, did live in the county, but went to school in the city for middle school. I switched schools quite a bit. Um, And I was definitely an entrepreneur and a hustler. I don't think that I really considered like the label entrepreneur or business person that wasn't like part of my vocabulary but um, I started investing in the stock market when I was about 13 years old um, you know constantly like trying to beat my dad in the returns on who could have the best stock portfolio uh, I was I sold uh, like candy to kids in my middle school when they shut down the vending machines so I've always been someone who's been interested in value creation and money and, um, and business at, at large, uh, definitely a multitasker. Uh, I oftentimes like starting things and then getting really good at them. And then I'm like, Oh, I'm done with it now. So like I took glass blowing c- classes, I did Taekwondo, um, of course sports and all that good stuff. So yeah, she was very busy. Or glass
0: blowing, uh, that you took, was it with Jim McKelvey?
1: At um, third, third, no, so Jim McKelvey, um, no, but I mean, there was like five people in tech in St. Louis, but that was right. around the same time. I mean, it was around the same time that, um, that people started to get jobs at Square. I remember, I remember that kind of cohort of, of, I mean, white boys, frankly, at, at the school at WashU, And I was like, what are they doing? <laughs> What's going on no, over the- there?
0: Being in tech, but also in glassblowing, was probably like just one or two people in St. Louis. Yes, exactly. The
1: glassblowing. Wait, do you know people in St. Louis?
0: Well, that's what I was saying. So, Jim McKelvey um, is also like a really good glassblower. We had him on the show and he has his um, studio, studio in St. Louis.
1: Yeah, it's right by Washi's um, campus. I did take that class, okay. um, but it. I didn't. Um, I haven't met him, but it was right. You know, Jim McKelvey. Not only does he have the studio, but of course, like from a tech point of view, he's he's incredible right. and one of the very few people in St. Louis. Um, him and Jack Dorsey what? that made it out.
2: Morgan, you mentioned um, that you were just like a young hustler and you just love making money. Where where did that come from? Is that something you grew up around, or is it the fact that you know maybe you didn't have money and you wanted to make money? I mean, what were you inspired by?
1: Um, I was inspired by a few different. People and things. My dad is a doctor. He's a research doc. So he was always writing grants and on calls with people around the world, um, working on proposals to the NIH. And so, you know, winning a million dollar grant or multi year investment from different funders wasn't abnormal to the kind of vocabulary and words that I was hearing growing up, uh, Mm -hmm. listening to his conference calls because he drove me to school. And so I think creating something, being an innovator um, from a cultural point of view was a part of my day-to-day life. I just didn't want to do it in right. in the, the educational world. <laughs> I was more interested in, you know, the yeah. corporate world and, and money in my pocket. And I do think that stemmed from the fact that I went to, um, although my family was relatively middle-class, upper-middle-class, I went I was in schools where people didn't have a lot of money and there was a lot of social economic diversity around me. And so, you know, Catholic school district, you know, I have girls who went to my school who had seven, 10 brothers and sisters. And, you know, that was, it was very apparent their lives and the different challenges that they had versus, versus my household. So yeah, I do think that I saw the power of, of cash and money at a young age.
0: Did you and you mentioned um you know kind of jumping around from school to school especially like around middle school did that make it hard for you to like keep friends at a young age and like what, did you feel more like on your own um mm. versus kind of you know being in like this clique or like this like group that you know you kind of grew up with from a young age up until going to, going off to college
1: It definitely made me a bit of a loner um which I think I am today and probably a bit of an introvert um but I know how to make friends fast, so it also allowed me to learn how to code switch between different subcultures and cultures. To your point, definitely in St. Louis, you know, people go to the same school from grade school all the way through high school. So, you know, if you're not friends with those girls when you're ten, they're definitely not going to make you friends when you're fourteen, 15, You know, first year freshman. So, I did have to learn how to navigate those spaces, and um, and it it made me a stronger leader, I think, today because I can relate. To so many different types of people very quickly,
0: right? Because at the time, you know, because um, because that it, it was kind of the same with me. Like just drumming around from school to school, you have to like make new friends. Yeah. Um, but it does help you think much more independently, in my opinion, from a young age. Because, it, it, like you said, it's easy to get stuck in that bubble. That um, is very common. I mean, it's you know, I'm sh- in St. Louis, but also like you know, in c- certain areas, like we're from LA, but certain pockets of LA, right. you know, like you have your different school systems. Everyone's just like. Thinks the same way and like likes the same things and does the same things and probably ends up in the same on the same path or similar path in life. That's right. Um, if they're just kind of conforming, then as opposed to like you know being independent. So I, I definitely think there's a lot of pros there. Um, but so I guess you know you mentioned you know um, so in college you you studied I think I saw political science and entrepreneurship. Did you want to always like just start your own business and have your own business and? Not work for anybody, and did you have that mindset, or what did you kind of envision life would look like after college?
1: Yeah, I didn't think about much of life after college until I was probably a junior senior. Um, so I, I got into school at Washu, um, you know, which is right down the street from my high school, frankly. So um, I was in a universe that was surrounded by comfort because Washington University is very much not St. Louis. (laughs) Like, it's completely different. You know, less than 6% of the population there probably uh, has stepped foot uh, outside of of a perimeter of the campus. And so I was really focused on being present there. So I was student body president, you know, at the age of 21, very young, um, freshman class president, you know, within months of, of being on campus. Uh, So I was focused on hanging out and being in the student groups and really enjoying my college experience. Um, I think at some point, though, one of the good things about student government, the reason why I did it, especially at a school like WashU, is so you have an incredible budget. So the budget was like over a million dollars and you actually had to like allocate the budget and you could people would lobby you and they would come in and pitch in the Senate and we would vote and they'd pitch in the treasury and we would vote and it's this whole thing. So again, I don't think that I thought, oh my gosh, one day I want to be an entrepreneur. It was more of like, I like being in places and spaces where I can make things and make decisions and work with groups of people and help them bring their ideas to life. Student government was one way of doing that. Um, sophomore year, junior year, I started taking entrepreneurship classes in the business school. And um, and then through that started to build products and companies. So I had a product in you in comp- in, uh, called Quad Connect with three other guys, and one of which is now my co-founder of Blavity. And we, you know, won the student pitch competition and did did all that dance. And so I started to test kind of the formal definition of entrepreneurship, I would say, you know, later in my college years.
2: Talk to us about what Quad Connect was.
1: Oh, you're making my heart smile asking me about Quad Connect. So Quad Connect <laughs> was um, a community platform for students to find out what was happening around them and where the free food was. So the main point was, uh, we have a bunch of free food that every student group does. That's like kind of the way that their customer acquisition was, we've got free pizza, we've got free Thai food, we've got free whatever. But if you're not in that social group, uh, and you're not in that Facebook group, which was at the time, like just starting to happen as Facebook groups, um, then how would you know? How would you know? So because I was student body president, I could see all the line items of how much money we were freaking spending on food for student groups. And I was like, there's no way we're eating all this. So information asymmetry technology is a great way to solve that.
2: So Morgan, I'm curious. So you talk about Quad Connect, you know, it's connecting people to this free food. So what was your idea of making money at the time? Like with Quad Connect, how how do you monetize free food?
1: (laughs) Now I'm not sure we had thought about it that far. um I think that at, at the time the the general philosophy of startup life was like you monetize it later, you just get a bunch of users, <laughs> so I don't think we ever really thought about money. Maybe it was like advertising in local restaurants or something around St. Louis, but no, we weren't uh we weren't that involved obviously it's it failed miserably, but yes hey,
2: no you got you gotta learn you gotta learn some business lessons somehow so after you graduated, what was the plan? I mean, did you, did you think that you were going to go off and start your own company? Did you, you know, want to work for somebody else? What did that look like?
1: Yeah. So I got the startup bug, I would say with Quad Connect. And I then started to look for startups to go work for in St. Louis and get internships. Like I said before, there's like four in the entire in the entire city at the time. Um, there was this guy who had an ed tech startup. It uh, was walking distance to campus. So I worked there. Um, and I was basically like a data sourcer, of uh, content sourcer. It was an ed tech platform where you could, based off of the curriculum or the textbook that you had for high schoolers, um, you could look up your lesson plan on our platform and it would match you with YouTube videos that would teach that lesson. Great great platform, makes sense. Uh, It was also my first exposure to like how curating content and putting it in in context can help advance or inform people better. Um, He became a mentor of mine. And so as I was deciding what to do after college, uh, I started applying to different jobs. And he said, you can go to Singapore. Uh, That's going to be the fastest place to get wealth and one of the fastest growing tech economies. And I said, look, Joe, I'm a black girl from St. Louis. I'm not going to Singapore. Okay, <laughs> what's number two on the list? He said, you know, Silicon Valley still has a lot of a lot of growth. You could still do a lot and, and learn a lot there. Everything still sem- stems from the Bay Area, and so I started applying to companies that have whose products I use. Um, and so I was filing my taxes and uh, getting a lot of notifications from Mint. And so Intuit, who makes TurboTax and Mint, uh, was a company I just cold applied to. You know, straight off the website, got the interview, flew out to the Bay, and I was sold. You know, they gave me the job offer. I moved there right after graduation.
2: What were you doing?
1: I was a product manager. So I was a product manager for a mobile app called Snap Payroll, and then um, I was a part of a rotational program that was. Very much around like leadership development and kind of a fast track to leadership at the company. So I rotated throughout the business. My last rotation was at Demand Force, which was a company that Intuit had recently acquired and they were just integrating it. So it was a really right. key moment for me to watch the integration of a startup culture because I'd only known corporate tech culture, which is, you know, it's great, but it's slower. It's very people who've been at the company for 10, 20, 15 years, you know, it's very much not my normal speed. Then I went to this demand forest company, you know, they've got dogs, they've got ping pong, they've got beer pong, they've got everything. (laughs) And it was, it was the dream of what you think Silicon Valley is good and bad. Right. And again, for me, I was in learning mode. So I was like, I'm going to learn as much as possible. But there was a disconnect in my personal life where I felt lonely. I felt that I had to hide a certain part of who I was at work. Um, Mike Brown had just happened in San, and I was in San Francisco, but being from St. Louis, seeing the difference between the energy in San Francisco and the topics of conversation and what I was feeling and seeing in my home city and in my Facebook groups or my email list, it was just a pure, like, I mean, I felt like, I was in an alternate universe, you know, and I wasn't, I did not want to stay in that industry. Um, I wanted to be around and work on projects and solve problems that I felt passionately about. And that was problems for people I could resonate with the black community.
0: And so, kind of before you get to this point, you know, you mentioned kind of being in learning mode, and I was—I'm just curious, like how much right when you graduate, how much were you future planning and like kind of trying to lay out, like this is what my career trajectory is going to look like, and how much was like I'm just going to take the best job that I can possibly take right now and just do my best at it, and then I'll figure it out. Because I feel like you know, oftentimes you can do that, and it, it's easy to get stuck in a career that perhaps you never even wanted to be in because of the, just the risks of like changing careers or even leaving and doing something. So how much of that was planned out and how much of it was just, you know, we'll take it day by day.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's a really good question. And I think especially in college, everybody kind of forces you or asking a bunch of questions like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I didn't really, um, have, I just wanted a job that, looked cool and that I felt like I could learn a lot from. It to me it was about the skills mm. and being surrounded by intelligent, smart people who were going to pour into me. Um I was willing to even work for less to have an experience which I could learn because I knew that um this was going to be a key moment in my life that sets up to my trajectory. So, you know, for anyone who's considering right now, what is that first job out of college? If you could work place X, that's going to pay you 10 K more place. Y, where you're going to learn 10 X more. You pick, you pick the other company. Okay. Like the money you'll make it back later because your skills and your, your knowledge base is going to be worth so much more. Um, and the second thing was being in the location that I could absorb. So, Similarly, being in the Bay Area, as long as I could get out there and get into the space, it's hard to predict. You don't know what you don't know, right? But I did know that Silicon Valley in the Bay Area is where I needed to be if I wanted to move quickly and build and be the best version of myself as an intellectual business person or technologist or an innovator. Whichever route I went, there's kind of no wrong option in Silicon Valley when when you're living there.
2: Right. And Morgan, just so our listeners know a little bit about, you know, you and just kind of can relate better to you, you've only been out of college for like eight, nine years, right? Yes, so you're not like this like forty five, fifty-five, sixty-five <laughs> year old professional out there making things happen. That's right. You're like a lot of our listeners who are, you know, in their early to early twenties to mid thirties, late thirties, right? We're still in that grind mode, that hustle mode, like trying to figure out like what we want to do with it, with our life mode, right? That's right. And you didn't stay at Intuit for that long. I mean, you were there for about a year. Two, three and then years. then you just go out and launch your own business, right? I mean, what happened that you realized, okay, like I can't do this corporate thing anymore that I really wanted to do my whole life because I really wanted to make money, but I want to go out and do something else on my own? Yeah. What, what, what happened?
1: So I uh, I was 24 when I started the company officially. Um, I'm 31 now, you know, so I've been in business for for six years. Um, And so, yeah, I was 22 when I started into it. I'd say around 23, (laughs) I started to be like, this can't be it. I got to get going. What are we doing? Um, Part of it was my ego. I mean, I was watching... People who were already added into it, who are two, three years older than me, leave the company and go raise two, three million dollars off of of an idea. You know, I'm sitting in Ubers and Lyfts, which, again, at the time were like the new thing. You know, I was sitting in Ubers and Lyfts and uh, the Uber driver was like, what startup do you work for? And I was like, damn, I don't work at a startup. You know, so (laughs) so I was I was just in a moment in time in which it was like, how could you not? How can you not give it a go? And um, if you're going to try, it should be now. When you don't have kids, you're not married. You know, I didn't have uh, school debt, which I was very privileged to not have that. And I was saving a lot of money and still living like a college student and was able to uh, really be able to save as much cash as possible so that I could quit and still live in San Francisco, which is very expensive.
0: Yeah. So, um. You mentioned like, you know, you left, well, it's kind of like, you know, it's, you can, there's a couple of different ways, I guess, folks start businesses. Like sometimes they just start a business just to start a business and hopefully it ends up working out. Um, but many times that probably doesn't work out um, versus, you know, like a serious pain or this opportunity or something that you see, but there's so many angles you can look at it. Like, you know, the business model makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't from the get go. And then, like you said, it kind of works itself out. Um, in your case, like, did you see like a specific problem or issue that you knew, like, I'm going to go after this all in? Or was it, I just want to start a business because it seems like everyone around me is doing it and be able to raise money and I'll figure it out as I go. But I don't really necessarily have like this like perfect idea or anything that I am super passionate about. Like, what was it for you?
1: Yeah, it was both. I think it came in phases and waves. So I started the the, I'm going to launch a business mindset or I'm going to try my hand at startup mindset, I would say in 2013. And that was definitely based off of ego and boredom and I have time on my hands and why would I not? And then the real question is, well, when did I decide that I'm going to risk it all (laughs) and actually quit? You know, there's a difference between just deciding you're doing something and then taking action. And um, that was... A couple things. That was Mike Brown because I was upset, disappointed, sad. I felt helpless and powerless. And right. um I felt like I had a skill set. I had a knowledge base because I was exposed to Silicon Valley. And not many black people at the time of my generation have been exposed to Silicon Valley, where I felt inspired to build something that made a difference. I felt inspired to build a platform and a brand that could be of service using technology. And then the last thing that happened is that I took a, I did an analysis of the market itself and uh, the market was very antiquated for the problem I was trying to solve. In other words, black media, legacy black media was not did not move to digital, did not move to mobile first and was not even prioritizing the millennial generation. They were holding on to their average, you know, reader's age, which was like 40, you know? So I had also a blue ocean to play with. And I knew that nobody was going to try to go after the black consumer because I knew no one in Silicon Valley cared about black people. So I would kind of had a lot of different things going for me a market that's huge a market i care about a problem that i feel like i can solve an antiquated market there's a roadmap for it because media Mm -hmm. isn't like a black box i mean there's so many millennial media companies launching at the time just no one was doing it for this demo
2: so so morgan i mean obviously the idea that you had really you know came from this tragedy with michael brown and what happened in ferguson um You know, but for that moment in time, do you think you would have launched
0: Blavity eventually?
1: No. No way.
0: Like it took it had to take that for you to like even realize that there was an opportunity here?
1: It had to take that for me to be so sad and so angry and so disappointed in how it was covered and to have the unique St. Louis perspective of a native watching how the news covered it and watching how even black media wasn't, didn't have the resources or the technology to, to empower those on the ground and to distribute information in the way that the activists needed us to distribute information at that time. It was, there's no way I would have right. taken this much risk without feeling. this so,
2: way. so Morgan, what was Blavity like early on? Like, you know, when you first launched it in 2014, Uh, after you had left and finally quit, what did the early days of this company look like? I mean, what sort of uh, media company was it?
1: Mm -hmm. So when I quit, I had started the business. We launched the first version of Blavity in July 2014. Um, And it was a video website and we were curating videos. We weren't an editorial site yet. We were very much like a Black Upworthy meets like Sophista Ratchet videos. It was very trendy. Um, that was July 2014. Mike Brown happened in August 2014. So very quickly, the video website <laughs> that we were building was like, Skirt! we need to cover news. We need to hire writers. We need to like be a place where people can use us to be of service. And we need to be a voice for creators. I also strongly believed that it wasn't just about activists. It was also about the voices, the creatives, the people of kind of the young Black demographic who are on the ground physically and, and virtually who are the voice for our black millennial age. Um, I mean, and
2: was it, was it basically like taking what, for example, what BET had done back then with entertainment, but, mm-hmm. and using that platform, but more so for news and other sorts of content, okay. as opposed to just entertainment, right? right? Where
1: you could go to BET at one point and it would break artists. You know, right. artists that you wouldn't be able to find on MTV or wherever. Right. Same thing. Like, we were breaking news. We were breaking creators. Um, you know, you look back at our old content, you're going to see Quinta B. You're going to see Lovey. You're going to see people who now are incredible stars. Um, but at the time, were you know, local, regional black millennial stars um and we were that first place to publish and so we we decided to build a platform for the people by the people very fubu right. and then scale through ground up and then I started acquiring brands you know fast forward Two years, three years after that, I then acquired a travel brand called Travel Noir that had done the same thing in the black travel space. I acquired Shadow and Act, which was doing the same thing in the black Hollywood entertainment space. And Afrotech is a business we created, which focuses on blacks in tech and and, uh, VC. Same thing. It's the same ethos, different verticals.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how do you get the ball rolling? Like, I know you mentioned you start with curating, and then I'm assuming at some point you start creating your own content. Yes. Um. How? And, and obviously, like, there's a monetization piece as well to be able to make the money to then go out and acquire these brands and all that good stuff. So, how does how does all that come together? Um. And how do how does like the word spread initially?
1: Well, the word spread pretty quickly. We went from. Um, I would say like December, 2014 to spring, 26, 2015. I mean, we were already at like a million monthly unique visitors because we were serving such a strong audience, both the creative audience and the kind of racial equity, social justice audience. Um, And no one was covering that stuff. So everybody was sharing, 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 and it created this viral coefficient. Um, Mm -hmm. And in terms of. The business side of it, I bootstrapped it for the first year and a half, and I didn't want to raise funding because I was very concerned with a venture capital fund or a group of people coming in and telling us who we were or who we were going to be too early before we had decided what kind of company we were going to be and what problems we were going to solve. Um, and ultimately I had to raise because we kept getting hacked um, at the time we were built on WordPress and we kept getting hacked by now we know it, the Russians. <laughs> it's ironic. Uh, Cause I was like, I think these are Russian bots or something. Um, and it was getting really expensive. You know, it was the yeah. servers, they were driving up a server costs um, and I couldn't afford to both pay people and, run the business it was just too expensive
0: and and was it just you like kind of at the helm or did you have like a co-founder or multiple co-founders like when you just first started it was it just you and then you kind of just like slowly started hiring more and more people
1: so it was me as the founding uh, person who quit their job and put the money down and paid for the business. Um, my good friends from college, Jonathan, Jeff, and Aaron, all kept their full-time jobs and helped out with different roles as we were building until we could get to a place where they could afford you know, to take a pay cut or whatever, what have you, depending on what their personal life was going on. Um, so yes, yeah, so I was full-time on the business for about probably like two years or a year and a half before, uh, one of the guys came on full time, um, Jonathan first. And then I believe, um, Jeff and then Aaron. So yeah, it was a it was a rough, mean and lean group of people, <laughs> um, and then we had a fellowship program because I I we needed a lot of folks from around the country involved. So I ran fellowship programs and internship programs because I could pay some amount of money, but not you know a full salary. So uh, it was a crazy operation looking back.
2: So Morgan, I've seen the website and I really love it. I mean, I just love how clean it is. I love just the different sorts of content on there. But I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you about Quad Connect, And that was, how did you plan on monetizing Blavity? Because I know that Pat and I and several others have always discussed different content platforms and how to monetize them is always an issue, right? Mm -hmm. Whether you're the LA Times, the New York Times, they're all struggling to figure out how to make money, right? So what was the idea early on and then what has it become more so now?
1: Um, Early on, we were going to monetize by advertising and through, um, I did believe in some sort of membership model, um, some sort of gated platform or community where we monetize a certain small slither of our total audience that we had grown on the media side of the business and charge a monthly fee. Um, That's not what we've done, uh, but that was the original plan. And... What we do now, and I'm proud that we are profitable and we've been able to build a model that so many people have failed at in, in a media company, and it's because we have two big businesses that are separate but live and coexist in an ecosystem. So one is Afrotech. Um, which is, you know, it's a leading tech conference. And so we have our main KPIs there is diversity, recruiting, hiring, and network building for Black professionals. So we have a job board. We have an annual conference. It, we have now, at this point, biweekly summits that are digital and in, in collaboration with our partners and sponsors. Um, and so it's a well-oiled machine that has incredible impact. in the early days of Blavity, we used that profit to reinvest in the media side of the business as we scaled our total reach on the media side of the the business and built our ad network. So our ad network not only serves our own and operated properties, it also serves a network of other multicultural publishers, which allows us to scale more efficiently. Um, And now that we're much larger, everything kind of evens out um, and, and winds up being an incredible business.
2: Right. And and how do you get folks, perhaps more so now, uh, who are not black or African-American to read articles or consume content that's on Blavity? Because I, mean, I remember as a kid, we used to watch like BET music videos all the time, right? Or you used to go on there and just... There was so much great content. Now, I mean, I can't say now that BET or VH1 or MTV are doing great. I mean, I don't think they are. Um, but we as non-blacks would go and watch this content. You know, why or... What would somebody who's not black get out of, you know, reading content or consuming content on Blavity?
1: Yeah, I think about 40%, uh, depending on the brand of our audience, is not black. So um, it actually is expected because black culture is relevant in so many industries in, in every parts of our lives from the food we eat to the music we listen to, to the sports and athletes we cheer on, um, to the businesses that we support. I mean, I just saw that, uh, Savage Fenty is a, a billion dollar company, you know, it's like, so black culture is everywhere. And, um, our content is, is about black culture. You know, certainly there's some news pieces that I don't think anybody wants to read, but us, but when you're thinking about or looking at, uh, you're traveling to Jamaica and you want to know what restaurants to eat at, Travel Noir is going to be the best place to tell you that. I mean, do you want to trust Travel Noir? Or you want to trust sure. World and Leisure? Like, you want to try the, the right. people who know what they're talking about, right? So, I think that um, Black culture is global and we've been able to stay true and super serve our demographic while still having a portion of our content and our stories be accessible to a wider range of people as well.
0: And speaking of the content, um, You know, is it a combination of like crowdsourced or, um, you know, curated content from other places on the on the Internet um, and also original content that you produce in-house or is it fully original now or is it fully, you know, uh, crowdsourced? Like, how is the model?
1: It's absolutely user generated and curated and. Uh, Own and operated, created in-house with our editorial team, depending on the brand. So um, Blavity News, we have, if you go to the website now, you can write a story. It goes to our op-ed editors. They'll edit it. They'll send you notes. It can get released it's a great opportunity for people who have a pulse on a specific part of the culture that maybe they don't want to write all the time but they have something to say because something has happened and we could be a great place to do that that's in alignment with why we started the company and our core mission similarly though if we're talking about something like travel noir if you just travel to jamaica and you know all the hot spots if you want to write that up or you want to send us a bunch of photos You know, we will accommodate that as well and make sure that we share your content out with a wider audience. And for many influencers now, we wind up being the first place of publish. So for people who are trying to grow their following, who want people to consider themselves, consider them as a domain expert or a thought leader, we're a great place to get started.
2: So I have a more broad question for you. That is something that I've been thinking about a lot since everything that happened, obviously, in 2020. Um, you, With, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and just everything that came as before that, after that. And so I tried to be as responsive as possible in my life by studying like the core problems that there are. And obviously, there's so many core problems. But there was one story that I had heard about this, like, I'll c- quickly tell the story, but apparently, there was like this appraisal, you know, in Florida, and a uh, husband and wife were trying to sell their home uh black family um and the wife goes away to let's say target whatever i don't know where she went and the appraiser comes white guy appraises the house three hundred thirty thousand dollars. right just a random number um she's like that's kind of weird because everything else has been selling for 440 450 in the neighborhood and she's an attorney i mean she's like making decent money she's not like a you know like unemployed woman with like a husband who's also on, like she's making money. She's a professional woman. So she said, you know what? I'm going to get a better idea here. So they ask for a black appraiser to come. Sorry, excuse me. They same, another appraiser comes, but this time they pull down all the pictures mm-hmm. in their home. Right. So to make sure that nobody can assume that they're black or anything of that nature. And it gets appraised for like hundred thousand dollars more than what it was. And so I thought to myself, the, one of the biggest problems here is the economic justice You know, and the fact that, or the injustice, I should call it, the economic injustice. How do you think that a company like Blavity or even somebody like yourself contributes in a positive manner to the economic justice movement for black folks as opposed to just the social justice movement, Mm -hmm. right? Which I still believe is very necessary and very important. But I also think that a lot of it stems from the economic injustice that occurs and the wide wealth gap that there is between Black Americans and everybody else?
1: It's, it's a great question. And uh, that story resonated, I think, with so many people who were like, this is just so obviously messed up, <laughs> right? Um I agree with you that economic empowerment, economic freedom, um, economic advancement, and the wealth gap is Arguably, in my personal opinion, the number one issue. Right. And I think it's partially the number one issue that I focus on because I feel like we have – it's more in our control. Um, I don't feel like I can make an impact as much on the political system um, and our laws because it's just so dependent on so many other people (laughs) like doing the right thing. And whereas economic freedom and economic justice, if you can, as an entrepreneur, create value and create wealth and create jobs and and own, be an owner, then you get the power. You have more likelihood of being able to even influence politics. And so, you know, for me, Afrotech, Blavity, Inc., all of our brands and our company, even our company mission is partially around economic advancement. Which yeah. could mean, particularly for Afrotech is where we mostly focus on it on a day-to-day, is let's get people jobs in tech where they're getting equity. You know, I have friends who got jobs, who came to Afrotech, weren't, weren't planning on moving to the Bay, you know, didn't want to work at Facebook or Twitter and leave, you know, and live out there with these people. No, they weren't interested right. in it. But when they got that equity package... And they Mm -hmm. got the stock and they did the math on how much their options were worth. It changes the entire trajectory of their entire family wealth structure to have those moments of being able to liquidate shares. Or when a company IPOs, I have friends who worked at Airbnb and that IPO, they were able to buy a house. So I firmly believe that it's not even just about entrepreneurship. It's also about access to better jobs and access to higher paying industries like the tech industry. And of course, as an entrepreneur myself, I take the responsibility of trying to share my information and give access to the things that I've learned along the way. I didn't have entrepreneurs that I could really talk to when I first started, nor do I come from a family that you know of, of entrepreneurs. And so I've learned a lot of things along the way, and I've made it part of my personal mission to help yeah. and advise a lot of young Black founders and Black small business owners even, because it's really hard and it's, it's right. lonely to do alone.
0: Not to mention, like you know, all all that stuff, but also like just serving as a role model and showing people, like, hey, look what's possible um, if you just like put yourself out there and and pursue whatever crazy dream or vision that you have. Because you know, there's a lot of people that'll you know help you and back you up, right? And so, for you, I guess maybe start at a young age, or maybe it's now. But like, who who do you look up to the most? Like, who are like they don't have to be even entrepreneurs, but people that you've just like always admired and kind of followed their path or career um you know whatever they're doing and it's inspired you to do great things as well
1: um the people that i've looked up to that have really influenced my and changed my behavior are absolutely entrepreneurs and they're peer entrepreneurs um Deshaun amira at maven um he was one of the first entrepreneurs to call me out when i still had my day job and was like do not talk to me about this company one more time until you quit <laughs> um <laughs> my friend dave salvant at squire um he oftentimes uh, advises me to be more aggressive with my terms when I'm negotiating with VCs. Um, my girlfriend, Melissa Butler at the Lip Bar, um, she taught me a lot about consumer business and her products are distributed in Target and Walmart uh, as a beauty company. So, you know, I look and try to learn and absorb from the people around me that are doing incredible things. And I think that more young founders, young entrepreneurs, instead of trying to like get that random meeting with that random VC, who's not really going to care about you spend more time networking and building relationships and being honest and authentic and vulnerable with your peers, because they too have experience and can share their advice and their feedback with you.
2: Right. Morgan, you're obviously such a young person who has like basically just started right in her journey. Where do you see yourself in the next few years? I mean, do you see Blavity just continuing to grow and you running that? Or do you see yourself venturing out to perhaps, you know, launch a venture capital fund and fund the next wave of black entrepreneurs? I mean, what is what is your vision?
1: I I go back and forth on this. Um, I feel very committed and responsible for making sure that Blavity continues to grow in a sustainable way profitable way that we can be, continue to be an institution for black media and for our voice of this generation. It's just, we're not done yet. We have a lot of other verticals to tackle. We, we just started podcasting. We got to figure out video and OTT and streaming. I mean, we have a lot more to do. Um, so that's going to take me some time and I'm committed to that now in terms of my personal role. Um, I made the transition from a founder to a CEO, which was not easy. I mean, there very much is a difference between someone who has a founder mindset and then someone who's able to operate as a CEO of a big business and scale that business to 50 million revenue, 100 million revenue. That's a very oftentimes different person. And so I asked myself, am I the right person for that? Right now, I think I'm still at the top of my game, Um, but there may be others who are more qualified than me that can lead this business better on the day-to-day on the operations side. So that may look like different things, Um, but it is something I ask myself often. My personal mission outside of Blavity is absolutely entrepreneurship and being of service to small business owners. Um, I started a podcast, the WorkSmart Advisor podcast, so I could just share more and scale up my information giving to other people. Um I angel invest and certainly I love giving away money. I would prefer to give away other people's money though. So there may be a fund <laughs> at some point that I join. Um, not sure that I really want to raise a fund, but I'd be happy to right. be a part of someone else's fund and give money right. away. Um, so, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens next.
2: Morgan, there was a couple of things I asked you early on and then I want to kind of tie together now, uh which was, you know, The audience that Blavity serves and then economic justice versus, you know, social justice. And not that necessarily they have to live apart, but just for this scenario, don't you think that a message of black entrepreneurship and, you know, encouraging others who are not black to hire other folks who are black And give them more opportunities, mentor them more, you know, really put an effort on giving them the space and the environment to be able to be exposed and grow is a lot better and stronger of a message than purely, right? Black Lives Matter, for example. And I'm not saying that that message doesn't matter, but we've spoken to the founder of Black Lives Matter. And after that podcast was over, I felt a little like, I don't know if this is enough. I don't know if this is a strong enough message to really convince people who are not black that the black lives do matter. But I do feel like after reading that economic justice story of that appraisal in the home, I was like, that's a damn good story. Like, that's a story that everyone can listen to and say, you know what? That's fucked up, right? Like, we got to do something about it. So I'm just curious what what your thoughts are, because I'm not not a black person. I can't sit here and be like, I know everything. But based on my perception, that's my viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I think that it's a viewpoint that many probably share. And um, I think my point of view is that it's not an either or. I think that we all have to do what is in our sphere of control and do what we can, because it's going to require more than just uh, having successful black businesses. We've had successful black businesses and they burned them down Tulsa. Right. So, you know, that's not enough. If you can burn me down and not go to jail, then I need the criminal justice reform. So Mm -hmm. I need both Patrice. I need, uh, Amanda Seals. I need D-Ray. I need, uh, Barack Obama. I need Diddy. I need Jay-Z. I need everybody to care and, and I need all white people to care. Because it will move much faster <laughs> if we're not doing this alone. Um, and I don't think we have a lot of time to wait. We've waited long enough. So whatever story, whatever uh, inequity, whatever thing pulls your heartstrings, great. Like if it's someone getting shot and killed and or someone being strangled to death, fine. If it is the social economic like, disparity, if it's the digital divide that all these kids right now are having school at home, well, that assumes they have a freaking Wi-Fi and they have devices and that they're not sharing one device with four kids in household. Yep. I mean, there's so many issues. Um, so, you know, I could go on and on, but I think for me and for any non-Black person listening to this, just find whatever the thing is that makes you care because there's an infinite list of problems uh, and opportunities for change.
0: And with all this said, um, you mentioned, you know, doing angel investing on the side and just kind of, you know, being involved in that community. What are you most looking forward to or excited for in the next, you know, five to 10 years, just in general, like what kind of areas or industries or what are you looking at?
1: Um, So I look when I angel invest, I've angel invested in um, three companies. One's called Public, um, which is a Robinhood alternative. And it's an app where you can invest in stocks. And as someone who invested in stocks at a really early age, at age of 13, I know the value of compounding you know, your returns on your stocks and how much money that can give you. And I want more people, especially people of color. One of the reasons I signed on to be an angel investor is because I wanted to be of service to making sure that the audience and the customer base was diverse and being a mouthpiece for this app. So, um, so that's something that I think is important is apps and platforms that democratize technology and give people more access to information and little guys being able to play in the big boys games and I think that's you know Robinhood started off that way I think public is a better option um and you know Bitcoin coinbase I mean there's a lot of people in fintech that are working on products in that vertical um the second part is consumer goods so diversifying consumer goods that enable people to uh, partake in health and wellness so I think health and wellness is a huge opportunity for our generation and gen Z because we've never had more cash and freedom to think about the ingredients we're putting in our food and our mouth and our hair and our skin and all these things um, so I think there's a huge business and trend there and then the last one is uh B2B. I mean running a business. Like I have seen all the tools in the world and yet they're still not good enough and I feel like we, we I mean we were just talking about uh Zencastr versus, you know, Zoom, you know, it's like there's just so many tools and um as more people become entrepreneurs, I think there's a lot of opportunity in the B2B kind of SaaS product area.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Morgan I also saw that you were just an advisor to so many of these companies whether it's American Airlines or Pepsi I mean uh, uh, that's that's pretty impressive first of all but like you know how did that happen and what what sort of value have you been able to bring to them uh, and and what did you and what have you learned from those companies that you could then apply to yours and um you know hopefully grow even more
1: Yeah so I am an advisor um to American Airlines PepsiCo Uh, Quaker Oats as a part of PepsiCo as well, um, and a variety of other organizations. And those big companies that I work with typically is around racial equity and inclusion and advising their longer-term strategies in the multicultural space. So oftentimes, they're clients who are multi-year commitments to Blavity, um, and they are thinking about how to do things better, and they know that the diversity in their leadership team um, may omit some opinions and some points of view around the table. And so they're bringing me and others in to provide that real honest point of view based off of the data and our experience. What I've learned in those rooms, um, there's a few things. One is like, yeah, they're really as clueless as you think. Like there is really a huge (laughs) opportunity gap. I mean, I'm probably going to get dinged by someone on a PR team later for this. But like, I'm like, wait, really? Like this is it? this is the, this is, this is what we're doing. You're, you're literally one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, and that terrifies me. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, I think that we do have a problem at the corporate level, at the C level and the board level at, at these companies to truly have diversity at the top. And I'm not just talking about like, black women on boards i'm talking about just true diversity in all of its senses i mean it cannot just be white men running these companies we need women we need all all of the different demographics because they're building products for all of us
2: Mm -hmm. yeah and a great example of that was something i read recently with uh there was this guy who worked at i want to call it frito-lay uh, and he was, like, the maintenance guy. Remember the story? Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, I think they put out... He he was Mexican. And he would just clean the floors. And this is, like, 20, 25 years ago. Um, And then, you know, he realized that there was, like, a product missing. And he would eat his, like, you know, chips with, like, hot sauce or whatever. And just kind of, like, you know, make it more, like, Latin. Like, yes. a Latin flavor. So, he basically... You know, the the CEO says, you know, whoever has like a new product for us, present it to us. So this guy goes in one day and he presents him what later has become like hot Cheetos, right? My this guy, product. There you go. <laughs> this guy literally, you know, was this Mexican maintenance guy within the warehouse. And, you know, he, he just liked it. his Cheetos the way that his people would eat food. And then they made hot Cheetos. And I mean, now, I think he's now like a, you know, motivational speaker or whatever. He's Hell done very yeah. well for himself. But That's I mean.
1: The point. I, it's better for right. business.
2: Right. hundred percent. And out of just, I think from diversity stems so many better ideas. Like even if you're just in a, like a group of friends, right. And you have five friends and you guys are all five different cultures or different backgrounds, whatever the case may be. The ideas that you could come up with, whether business or life, are just so much better because everybody's bringing a different perspective. Right. Right. And I think that like, for me, I don't like to be surrounded with people that are going to always tell me yes. Right. I I already think I'm right all the time. Right. That's, that's kind of the point. But I want other people to be like, no, that's actually not right. We should probably try this out this way, right? Just the different perspectives that people bring to stuff can really help innovate businesses, right? The reason why those products that you're talking about B2B are probably bad is because the white men are making it for other white men. And it's good for them. Right, and but even they don't women
1: know. In the room, you know, and exactly. I, I think that's the key, too, is somehow diversity has become this cringy word to some group of people where they're like, oh, diversity, let's not talk about it. Right. Oh, diversity. You just mean, like, let's just give away all the tables and seats to all these other people. OK, look, I get it. There's a fixed number of seats at the table. So in order to increase diversity, you're going to have to take away a seat from someone who already has one, which is most likely a white man. So I understand as a white man why this might be uncomfortable because you're going to have to give away some, or just that. get a
2: bigger table. I don't know why you can't or get a bigger can table. A
1: bigger table, but the mindset it, is that it's you're pretty taking simple, right?
2: Mean, <laughs> I mean, yes, you're taking the numbers away from the denominator, but like you know, it doesn't matter, right? Like if you want to keep your ten white men, keep them. Just Absolutely. add seven other women in there. That's right. right? Like it's, you know, so, maybe it's, that's what we should
1: do. I mean, I think the Nasdaq totally. CEO is woman now, and she's like mm-hmm. about to mandate some yeah. diversity benchmarks
2: for corporations. I love it. Well, Morgan, we can probably sit down and chat with you about a ton of stuff now, but, uh, you know, it's just so inspiring to see somebody who's in our kind of age group and the age group of our, our listeners who who's still in that grind mode, uh, talking. I hope that people that listen to this are inspired by the fact that you literally graduated, worked for a couple of years and then just started your own thing, right? Like it didn't take you many years to take action and just become an entrepreneur. And sometimes you have to take that risk or that leap of faith to create what you want in life or else you're just going to be stuck at a place where they're not going to give you what your life is supposed to be or what your passions and purposes are so uh, thank you for sharing your story and I'm hoping one day we can do this in person since this pandemic sucks Um, (laughs) but uh, you know thank you for your uh, the, the motivation and inspiration that you've given both of us I'm sure and for everybody else listening to get up and do something about something
1: Thank you for having me. It's been so fun.
0: Thank you, Morgan.